When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Imagine the setting. Thousands of years ago, sitting in the dark of night, with no light but that from the starry skies, the moon, and perhaps a fire burning bright, our ancestors would sit and listen to their elders tell of their origins and of the origins of the world. These stories gave meaning to their identity and to the meaning of their lives. These tales passed down orally from generation to generation, developed into the many, many earliest stories that we still hold dear, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, the Odyssey and the Iliad of Homer, the Holy Scriptures of the Hebrews, the Christian New Testament, the Quran, the Babylonian Enuma Elish, and the Mahabharata. These are just a few of the many stories from around the globe that began far back in our past and still are cherished today. Now, Jorge Luis Borges was an Argentinian author that I have held great respect for his work for several years. And in his lifetime, he wrote several very profound words, but none as important as these that I often have at hand. Myth is at the beginning of literature and also at its end. Poets shared old tales and created new ones. Some poets created stories set to music. The creation of alphabets and writing and art gave our ancestors new ways to preserve and share stories. Precious texts were hand-copied and preserved and were of great value. Then came the exceptionally significant printing press, which began the democratization of information and made it easier for normal people, rather than just the elite and learned, to have access to our stories. People began to flock to stand before stages to watch stories come to life in the performance of plays. Now we can press fast forward and we get to the development of radio, where people would gather around a big box to listen to stories come to life with rapt ears. Next came film and television. Next came the internet. And now we're at the present, and we are still listening to and watching stories, true and fictional. No matter where you are, you can see and hear stories. 
sitting in an air-conditioned house watching the latest episode of The Bear or The Last of Us magically streamed to our televisions, going for a run listening to the Wild West extravaganza, or real life and other fantasies with Melvin E. Edwards, riding the bus and watching a documentary on whales, or actually just sitting in the shade of a tree reading an actual book. Not to get too postmodern, but there is something important in Simon Ortiz's statement, there is no truth, only stories. It is in stories that we understand ourselves and see each other in the world. We human beings have always been obsessed with them, and we are still creating them and sharing them. Why? There are many reasons we are captivated by stories, but one reason seems to stand out for me. Stories are, along with the many different and varied branches of knowledge, a way in which we explore ourselves and our world. Chris Hedges, an author armed with two decades of experience as a war correspondent, has written eloquently and with passion in a Poetic Outlaw Substack article, How With This Rage, on the importance and power of writing and storytelling. He says great authors and storytellers that maintain relevance even decades after the light of their lives flickered out, quote, understood the dark forces within us, the Hobbesian universe born out of violence and chaos. Great writing serves as a steady reminder that, among mutable and inconstant human beings, there remain glimpses of redemption, understanding, and compassion, even if these virtues rarely triumph. Reading great poems, novels, and essays helps us to cope with our own insecurities and uncertainty, allowing us to plunge to the very depths of our inner being depths that often lie beyond articulation. These writers help us to define ourselves and give words to grief and pain and joy that would otherwise lie beyond our reach. And reading like this saves us from the deadening textual criticism and academic snobbery that overpowers and destroys the heart and soul of great art. End quote. Culture, art, literature, poetry, music, these things are so important to humanity. Coupled with conversation and learning and family, these are important, powerful things to focus on. Painters, writers, poets, playwrights, musicians, architects even. They shape the time that they live in. They shape our time now. And their work shapes the future as well. To understand ourselves and our present, it is essential to understand the actions and creations of those that have preceded us 50 years ago, as well as 500 and more years ago. There is meaning in the act of storytelling. David Foster Wallace 
was an author, and he was a person obsessed with storytelling and art and using words to paint a picture. Sadly, he is no longer with us. But during the brief moment in time that he participated in our love of stories, he made a coarse but profound statement about the meaning of literature. Now, he himself practiced mainly, but not entirely, in the world of fiction. He was also an accomplished essayist and cultural critic. In an interview with Michael Silverblatt, he did several years ago before his death on the Bookworm podcast, he said, and I paraphrase, literature, fiction, storytelling is all about what it means to be effing human. You can fill in the excerpted part there. Now, there's also an excellent speech in a little collection of speeches by Elmer Kelton, My Kind of Heroes, in which one of my favorite authors also shares similar sentiments in a much more polite way. He saw the same value in the practice of storytelling and reading and learning from each other through time. I believe these ideas are applicable to all forms of storytelling and creativity, including the visual arts and music. I I have to include something that Blake, Mr. Rivers of Texas River Tongue, shared about this on the last, and I mean the last Texas River Tongue episode. He was talking with Derek McClendon, another great artist, about the importance of music. But I know what they said. It, it works for all these branches of creativity and storytelling. And he said it's about connecting on a human level, appreciating artists and others, and the struggle and human nature. I think that sums it up pretty well also. According to T-Bone Burnett, the goal of art is to create conscience. And I think all of this that I'm trying to get to here, it applies as well to the art of history. Now, I know that might sound pretentious, and I'm not meaning it in that way. For many decades, history is and has been in the humanities, and it's also been grouped as a social science by some. And in the 19th century, they leaned heavily into making it a part of the social sciences. But as American historian Bernard Balin titled one of his books, it is also sometimes an art, and it is in that practice, the artistic part of it, that we can reach more people. One of the prerequisites for leadership used to be a knowledge of and an ongoing pursuit of the study of history. From what I understand, sadly, this is no longer the case. President Harry Truman wisely noted that the only new thing in the world is the history you don't know. And I once heard David McCullough, great American writer of historical works, say that we have a great need for empathy for each other and for those that preceded us 
He said that gratitude is also important, and studying history can help achieve these traits. And that's an interesting thought there, come to think of it. We often hear how reading literature and studying can help create empathy for each other now. But I think it's significant that he pointed out that we need to have empathy for those that preceded us. And that's also where this issue of gratitude came up. Be grateful for the good things. And still, yeah, be critical of the things that were wrong in the past. Good scholarship requires care, attention to detail, judgment, and writing to effectively communicate. These are qualities that studying history helped develop, and they are qualities that are necessary for many aspects of life and work, not just history. In 2002, Robert Caro, author of respected biographies of Robert Moses and Lyndon Johnson, said, There is almost a view that if it's written well, it can't be good history. In my view, it's not good history unless it is well written. History is a narrative. History is a story. If you're not telling a story, you're not being faithful to history. End quote. Several decades earlier, in a 1912 address to the American Historical Association, Theodore Roosevelt shared similar thoughts, saying that unless the historian, quote, writes vividly, he cannot write truthfully, for no amount of dull, painstaking detail will sum up the whole truth, unless the genius is there to paint the truth. Along with their other purposes, applications, and uses, almost every area of study and investigation in human knowledge is also involved in telling stories about ourselves and everything in the universe. The natural sciences, social sciences, formal sciences, applied sciences, humanities, and the arts, biology, anthropology, religion, psychology, philosophy, chemistry, economics, astronomy, physics, archaeology, astrophysics, biochemistry, and on, and on, and on. All explorations of knowledge tell a part of our story and can contribute to our understanding of it. Of these, as I alluded to, depending on who you talk to, history is a subdivision of the humanities and or the social sciences. The honest answer is that it is both, as well as being an art, and as our knowledge base grows, for everything, our understanding of history grows by listening to other fields of study. Each of these areas of knowledge can be further subdivided for focus and greater understanding, and that also, of course, applies to history and it can be overwhelming if you look at it closely. History itself is also subdivided. And today the study of history is extremely specialized. The very, very ambitious can study and write about big history. A course of study that attempts to fit all of human history into the grand cosmic story of the entire universe. From the Big Bang to the present, and sometimes even beyond into futurism and the expected death of our star, the sun. 
to see more examples of this, you can look at the work of people like David Christian's book, Origin Story, Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens, and Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything. On the opposite end of the spectrum are specialists in microhistory, which grew from the pioneering work of George R. Stewart, Giovanni Levy, and Carlo Ginsberg, along with other scholars. It is an extreme focus on a very specific person or people, moment in time, and place, which, as Charles Joyner has explained, microhistory involves, quote, large questions in small places. Dwayne Corpus wrote, Microhistory is a particular methodological approach to the study and writing of history. The aim of microhistory is to present especially peculiar moments in the past by focusing on the lives and activities of a discrete person or group of people. By illuminating the trials and tribulations of ordinary people in their everyday lives, microhistory aims to show both the extent of and the limits upon human agency, i.e. the ability of individuals to make meaningful choices and undertake meaningful actions in their lives by analyzing what might often seem to modern readers as strange and bizarre events and socially marginal peoples, microhistory offers a more inclusive understanding of who and what matters within the discipline of history. By emphasizing everyday life, microhistory forces us to rethink traditional approaches to history that focus on seemingly more important political events and actors. Finally, by looking at the micro level of social activities and cultural meaning, microhistory challenges approaches to the study of history that emphasize the need to quantify, generalize, or naturalize human experience or define and impose normative and abstract historical laws, structures, or processes on the historical changes of the past. For other examples of microhistory, you can see Ginsberg's The Cheese and the Worms, Mark Kurlansk's Salt, A World History, and Wonderlust, A History of Walking by Rebecca Solnit. Now, in between these two avenues of study, microhistory and big history, there exists a legion of subdivisions and specializations. African history, American history, ancient history, ancient Egyptian history, ancient Greek history, ancient Roman history, Assyrian history, Bronze Age civilizations, biblical history, the history of the Indus Valley civilization, Mayan history, the history of Mesopotamia. You can get on and on and on and go deeper and deeper. You can study cultural history, ecclesiastical history of the Catholic Church, economic history, environmental history, European history, intellectual history, Jewish history, Latin American history, modern history. The list goes on and on, and within each of these areas, you can further subdivide. Scientific history, technological history, world history. It's a whirlwind of more specificity and interrelated subjects. And within each of these avenues of study, you can dive deeper and deeper into more focused topics. And of course, there is Texas history, 
which is the use of the historical method to tell the stories of the place and peoples of Texas. Texas history itself can be especially focused as greatly as anything else I have mentioned. You can dive deeper into Texas agriculture. And then you start looking into Texas agriculture, you can look at the cattle industry, the sheep industry, different specific crops that have been grown in Texas. There's Texas art, Texas economic history, Texas environmental history, Texas food and cooking, Texas culture, Texas politics, and on and on and on and on. And in the end, Texas history is simply another story about being human by focusing on a place and the peoples that have lived here. Something wonderful about using Texas as the lodestone of attention is that we can zoom in for an extremely close micro-historical investigation, or we can launch upward and outward to explore its place in a larger narrative like American history, and beyond that, the history of the Western Hemisphere. The history of the world, big history, and on and on. Knowing this is exciting, and at times it's daunting. There are almost no limits to the questions we can ask and the stories we can tell. On page one of his book, Europe, A History, Norman Davies addresses the topic I am focusing on. He wrote, quote, History can be written at any magnification. One can write the history of the universe on a single page or the life cycle of a mayfly in 40 volumes. A very senior and distinguished historian who specializes in the diplomacy of the 1930s once wrote a book on the Munich crisis and its consequences, 1938 to 1939. A second book on the last week of peace and a third entitled 31 August 1939. His colleagues waited in vain for a crowning volume to be called One Minute to Midnight. It's an example of the modern compulsion to know more and more about less and less. And Davies ended this by saying, The history of Europe, too, can be written at any degree of magnitude. Texas history can be as well. Now, there are several reasons to study history in general, and Texas history specifically. But before I get into the main list, let's consider the following great explanation by Edith Hamilton. In 1942, the classical scholar issued an expanded edition of her book, The Greek Way, in which, in the preface, she wrote the following, quote, I have felt, while writing these new chapters, a fresh realization of the refuge and strength the past can be to us in the troubled present. Religion is the great stronghold for the untroubled vision of the eternal. But there are others, too. We have many silent sanctuaries in which we can find breathing space to free ourselves from the personal, to rise above our harassed and perplexed minds, and catch sight of the values that are stable which no selfish and timorous preoccupations can make waver, because they are the hard-won permanent possessions of humanity. When the world is storm-driven, and the bad that happens and the worst that threatens are so urgent as to shut out everything else from view, then we need 
to know all the strong fortresses of the Spirit which men have built through the ages. This very thought-provoking and profound statement by Edith Hamilton. And I also believe that history is a fortress of the Spirit. You are listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone everywhere. We're going to end this episode here, and we'll be continuing in our next immediate following episode, continuing to look at our history, our never-ending story, and the reasons why it's important, because there are many reasons that we should focus on it. And in these times, we need that fortress of the spirit in history, that understanding of who we are and why we are the way we are. So I'm going to end this episode. Let's end this episode with a song by Derek McClendon, The Ballad of the Young Cowboy, which is a good illustration of storytelling through music and taking a moment in the past, fictional, but trying to capture and tell a story that has meaning that you can relate to. And Derek does a great job on this. It's one of the first songs I heard of his that made me dive deeper into his work. And now he is the contributing artist to the Texas History Lessons theme song. So thanks to him. Thanks to all of you again for listening. We'll see you next time following up why the important story is something we need to keep a stress on and keep supporting. So until next time, take care of yourself, take care of each other, be kind. Adios. Well, I packed up my saddlebags and headed out into that setting sun. It was the west and only west and I couldn't rest until my job was done. I had to find the man that killed my brother and I had to bring him in. He was wanted alive or dead and I had me burning rage within. Oh, can't you see what it means to me? That justice served for family That evil man Killed my best friend And I'm gonna shoot him dead Yeah, I'm gonna shoot him dead Kill my best friend And 
Justice will serve for family. That evil man killed my best friend. And I had to shoot him dead. Yeah, I had to shoot him dead. Yeah, I had to shoot him dead. 